Satan is a created being, created by God. His power cannot rival the God of the universe. God, when he chooses, will have him bound, and when he chooses, with a word of his mouth, will bind him forever in eternal hell. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Is there something in your life that carries the most influence? For you as a believer, is it the Word of God or is it something else? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of a series titled, This Is Your Life. Last time, we began to examine the powerful forces that direct and control all those who are outside of Christ. Today, Tom will look at your greatest enemy, Satan. You'll discover that there are a few key dangers for those who have been made spiritually alive in Christ. One particular danger in regard to the activity of Satan is seeing his demons and him as responsible for your sin thinking that they operate outside of God's control and then simply denying their reality. So what is the biblical way to view the influence of Satan in your spiritual journey? Let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn once again to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our study of this wonderful paragraph at the beginning of chapter 2. If you have been a Christian any time at all or have even read much in the culture, you understand and know of a man named C.S. Lewis. During the Second World War, C.S. Lewis wrote a number of things, but one of the things that he wrote was a series of letters that appeared in a Christian magazine. The letters were supposedly written by a spirit being named Screwtape. Screwtape is presented in these letters as an older, wiser demon. He is the uncle of a young demon and an apprentice named Wormwood. So Screwtape writes to Wormwood, giving him advice on how better to accomplish his diabolical mission of destroying one particular young man. By the way, if you haven't read the book, there's an interesting story even in the preface. C.S. Lewis tells that when these letters were published in that Christian magazine, just as they appear in the book. If you've read it, you understand it's satire. And when the, the letters were published, there was one particular man in the magazine's readership who wrote the magazine asking that his subscription be canceled. And he said that much of the advice that was given in these letters seemed to him not only erroneous, but positively diabolical. The articles that Lewis wrote were later combined into the book that we know as the Screwtape Letters. Lewis's purpose in writing them was to show us in sort of a backhanded way the activity of Satan and demons, what that activity really is. In the final part of the book, in a section entitled Screwtape Proposes a Toast, Lewis presents a very interesting scene. The scene is in hell at the annual dinner of the Tempter's Training College. And Screwtape is asked to propose a toast as the older, wiser of the demons there. The wine, Lewis tells us, 
with which the toast will be proposed is old vintage Pharisee. Screwtape says this, you know how this wine is blended? Different types of Pharisee have been harvested, trodden, fermented together to produce its subtle flavor. Types that were most antagonistic to one another on earth. Some were all rules and relics and rosaries. Others were all drab clothes, long faces, and petty traditional abstinences from wine or cards or the theater. Both had in common their self-righteousness and the almost infinite distance between their actual outlook and anything that the enemy really is or commands. Of course, the enemy in this case is God. All said and done, my friends, Tape finishes, it will be an ill day for us if what most humans mean by religion ever vanishes from the earth. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. Those are really profoundly insightful words. Lewis's point is that religion in all its forms is inspired by and used by the devil like no other weapon in his arsenal. That's exactly what Paul wants us to see today as we return to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses constitute the first sentence, the first paragraph, and as I've told you before, these really describe the spiritual biography of every Christian. If we wanted to reduce the message of these 10 verses to a single point, it would be this, salvation, that is spiritual rescue from sin, is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. As Paul develops that theme, he lays out this dramatic change that has occurred in the life of his readers, in all the lives of his readers, those who were in the church in Ephesus. He begins in the first three verses by explaining and reminding them of what we were, what we were in the past before salvation, before God found us. The next three verses, verses four through six, describe what God did. And verses 7 through 10, why God did it. We've been studying over the last couple of weeks what we were. Just those first three verses, they provide the backdrop for the dramatic rescue that God accomplishes in verses 4 through 6. We have to understand what we used to be before Christ. Now, Paul's explanation of the way we were before Christ includes... A number of things that we're working our way through. First of all, our true condition or nature before Christ. Notice how verse 1 begins, and you were dead. Paul is describing what theologians call total depravity. Before Christ, we were all completely dead in reference to God. We were cut off from God. As he puts it later in Ephesians, we were without God in the world cut off from the life of God and without hope. We were dead spiritually. Why? Well, he gives us the root cause of our condition. If dead is the condition, the root cause of that condition is to the end of verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead by reason of your trespasses and sins. 
We were born spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. That's found elsewhere in the New Testament. But we are also spiritually dead because of our own individual sins and trespasses. And together, those constitute the root cause of our condition, which is dead. We began last week to look at the practical results of our condition. The practical results of our condition. Verse 2 begins, in which, that is, in your trespasses and sins, you formerly walked. Verse 2 says, we formerly walked in trespasses and sins. Walk, of course, is a biblical metaphor for behavior, for conduct, for lifestyle, for patterns of living. The dominating quality of our conduct, our behavior, our lifestyle before Christ is that of the constant repetition of individual sins. That's how we lived. Paul adds in verse 2, we walked according to. It's a very interesting expression as we saw last time. It means in conformity to, are in step with. Our sinful lifestyle was in complete conformity, are in perfect lockstep with three powerful forces. Forces that controlled our thinking, that directed our decisions, and that dominated our lifestyles. What were these three powerful forces that we were in lockstep with? Well, he tells us in verse 2, the world... Also in verse 2, the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And thirdly, in verse 3, the flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. We were in lockstep with these three powerful forces. We walked or lived according to them. Last time we looked at the world. In verse 2, he says, we walked according to the course of this world. We conducted our lifestyle in lockstep with the mindset and values of the times in which we lived. The world, as it's described, that, that system that Satan has set up that is characterized as opposed to God with all kinds of mixed up values and priorities and thinking, we were in lockstep with it. We thought we were on our own. We thought we were free. We all tend to think that we make our own decisions. I'm my own person. I decide what I'll be and do. God says, no, you weren't. Before I found you, you were dominated by the mindset of your times. Today, I want to examine the second powerful force that directed and controlled our lifestyle before Christ. Not only the world, but also the devil. Verse 2, notice, says that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, I know the moment I say the word devil or say the word Satan or, or refer to demons, immediately there are four dangers that we all must avoid. Danger number one is thinking that by devil and demons, the Bible means what most people think of when they think of devil and demons. There's a lot of free-floating ideas about who these beings are, and you see them portrayed in pop culture. You hear about them in songs, like the devil went down to Georgia, an old one I know, but nevertheless, I'm dating myself. 
Or in movies, horror movies, you know, you see the demonic pictured. And so you get this image in your mind of what that's like. Or even caricatured in almost comic book fashion as a, as a figure in a red suit with a tail. The result of all of this is that the average person, and I would say even to some extent the average Christian's perception of what these beings are like, has far more to do with a comic book than it does with the Bible. So don't think the Bible means what the culture portrays. Second danger, seeing Satan and demons behind every trouble and sin that you encounter. There are Christians who frankly think the devil has something to do with a bad hair day. This trivializes these desperately evil beings in a way that the Bible never intended. A A third danger when we think about Satan and the demons is thinking that they operate outside of God's control. Thinking somehow that Satan is almost of equal force and being of God. Some people have almost a dualistic picture of Christianity. Listen, we don't believe in a dualism, that there are these two almost equally power, powerful beings at battling for the universe. No, the picture the Bible portrays is the one Luther describes where the devil is God's devil. He has him on a leash and only lets him go as far as he decides. Satan is a created being, created by God, His power cannot rival the God of the universe. God, when he chooses, will have him bound, and when he chooses, with a word of his mouth, will bind him forever in eternal hell. He only uses him to accomplish his purposes. The fourth danger, and this is one that's becoming more and more a problem in Christian churches, is simply denying their reality. Well, you know, I I can take a lot of the Bible, but do you really believe there's a personal being called the devil? Isn't it just a force? Are you really believing that there are these angelic beings that are now demons, and do you really think that's true? Well, you're faced with a decision. Are you going to believe yourself in your own mind? Are you going to believe the culture? Are you going to believe God's revelation? Because the Bible clearly teaches that there is a spirit being of immense power, of incredible intelligence, and of unthinkable evil. And this being has set himself against God. And through deceit and cunning, he led a revolt of a third of the angels that God created, and they now follow his leadership and execute his commands. When did all of this happen? Well, we can't be certain, but probably after Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, because at the end of the sixth day, what does God say? And everything was very good. But before Genesis 3 and the fall of man, because there Satan appears to tempt Adam and Eve to sin, somewhere in that time frame, Satan and the demons fell. You say, how does that happen? Well, We have a description of it, and I want you to turn back to an Old Testament book, back to the book of Ezekiel. Back to Ezekiel 28. Here, I think, we have the clearest description of what happened. It's important you understand who this person is that Paul is talking about. He would have understood this intuitively. He would have studied this at length. And he's bringing that to bear, so we need to get up to speed. Exodus, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. Here we get insight into exactly how Satan fell. 
In the first 10 verses of this chapter, the prophet describes God's judgment on a human figure, a human king, the king of Tyre, as he's called, or as we would know it, Phoenicia. The king of Phoenicia. But in verses 11 through 19 of the same chapter, the prophet seems to go beyond a human figure, beyond the human king of Phoenicia, to describe his antitype, Satan himself, the one who, as it were, stands behind this evil human king and empowers him and prompts his actions. There are things in verses 11 through 19 that are impossible to attribute to a human being. So I believe you have here a description not of the king of Tyre, the human king over Phoenicia, but rather the spirit being that empowers him, Satan himself. Look at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You have here a description of Satan in unparalleled beauty. If you try even with a a cursory read to picture it, you get the picture of this majestic being. And notice his place in heaven, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. At some point, if we have time to study this passage in great detail, you see that what you have here is a description of Satan's position. He stood in the highest position in heaven. He served at the very throne of God, probably as the chief guardian of the majesty and holiness of God. He was a being of moral spotlessness and perfection. Look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of 10th Street Presbyterian in Philadelphia before James Montgomery Boyce, writes this. Satan awoke in the first moment of his existence in the full-orbed beauty and power of his exalted position. Surrounded by all the magnificence which God gave him, he saw himself as above all the hosts in power, in wisdom, and in beauty. Only at the throne of God itself did he see more than he himself possessed? Before his fall, he may be said to have occupied the role of prime minister for God, possibly ruling over the universe, but certainly over this world. No created being was higher in position and status and beauty and power than Satan. So how did he become what he is today? Well, I think verse 15 is the only verse in the Bible that precisely states the origin of sin. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until, until unrighteousness was found in you, inside of you. You see, the origin of sin was in the heart of Satan himself, this incredibly powerful, beautiful, amazing being, the prime minister of heaven. 
Barnhouse writes, sin began with spontaneous generation in the heart of this being in whom such magnificence of power and beauty had been combined and to to whom such authority and privilege had been given. What was his sin? Well, again, if we had time, we'd look at verses 16 and 17. To summarize it, we could say that his sin was pride, personal ambition, and self-promotion. Pride, personal ambition, and self-promotion. You see, he decided that he wanted to rule. And as John Milton said in his classic poem, Paradise Lost, Satan decided better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. After his fall, Satan has existed for one great purpose, and that is to undermine the eternal plan of God. Now, with that background, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Because here we meet this powerful spiritual being and how he intersects with every human life without exception. According to God himself, I'm not making this up, this is what God says, before a person becomes a Christian, he lives his life not only in lockstep with the thinking of his age, but also in step with, are influenced by the devil himself. Notice what verse 2 says. We walked according to the prince. Now, clearly the reference here is to the devil. Ephesians has more to say about this being and his forces than any other New Testament letter, and we'll see it as we go through it. We've already encountered one such reference. Chapter 1, verse 21 speaks of the various levels of demonic authority in the evil hierarchy of Satan's kingdom. But the rest of the book focuses on the ultimate authority behind all evil. In chapter 4, verse 27, he's called the devil. In chapter 6, verse 11, the devil. In chapter 6, verse 16, the evil one. And here in chapter 2, verse 3, the prince. Now, the Greek word for prince is used in classical Greek of a ruler, of a king, of a lord. Satan is called a ruler or a lord or a king because he rules over a hierarchy of other supernatural evil beings. In fact, our Lord himself, on several occasions in the Gospels, called him the prince of demons. He's the ruler of demons. Satan is the personal center of the power of evil. Notice how he's described here in Ephesians chapter 2. First, Paul says he is the prince of the power of the air. This describes the sphere or location of his realm. The word that's translated power in that phrase literally means authority, and it's often translated that way in the New Testament. It can describe the authority itself, and then it's translated as power or government. It can also describe the sphere of that authority. Then it's translated as domain or realm or kingdom. And that's probably what Paul has in mind here. Satan is the prince of a particular domain or realm or kingdom. And Paul describes it. He says the devil is ruler over the domain or realm of the air. What does that mean? Well, you have to sort of rewind back to the first century because in the ancient world, 
The air was the territory between earth and heaven. It's the atmosphere. It's what we breathe into. It's what we walk around in. They believed that it was crowded with spirit beings. Pythagoras, whose name you'll recognize from studies for, famous for other things, said, the whole air is full of spirits. So in Paul's day, the air all around us was considered to be the dwelling place of evil spirits, as opposed to some huge distance away, or as opposed to inside the earth itself. Rather, the atmosphere in which we walk and live and have our being, these spirit beings were considered to have as well. Is that a biblical concept? Absolutely. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part six for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.